Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Today on the Beeson Podcast, I want to introduce you to Chris Cristaldo. Chris has been a friend of mine for several years, and we're going to have a conversation today about his own spiritual pilgrimage. He was a Roman Catholic who has become an evangelical Christian, written a wonderful book about it called Holy Ground, Walking with Jesus as a Former Catholic. Chris, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thanks, Timothy. Great to be with you. Now, I don't remember exactly how we met, but it's been several years ago, and we've done a number of things together, uh, really around this issue, among others. For example, uh, Wheaton College sponsored a, they called it a debate. It was really more of a discussion. Uh, My good friend, Dr. Francis Beckwith, and I talked about, uh, can one be both Catholic and evangelical? And you were the moderator of that event. I was. There there was a lot of heat around this topic, and uh, that was a great opportunity for us to shed a little bit of light. I remember there was a lot of interest. We had a huge crowd that night, and people followed this, I guess, on the website and so forth. I still get comments from people uh, who have seen or heard what we said, and you were kind of the main uh, impresario to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, I'm told that it's one of the most frequently viewed programs they have here at Wheaton College Television. How about that? Well, right now, I want to focus on you because you have a fantastic uh, spiritual journey uh, that you've been through in your life and your walk with Christ. So uh, take us back uh, to your days as a Catholic and kind of how that unfolded in your own life. Yeah, I had a wonderful experience as a Catholic. Grew up Long Island, New York. Sort of imagined Italian American family. We would uh, we were very active in our local parish. Father Tom was a was a good friend. He would come over our house, and uh, so a lot of rich memories, little things, you know, lighting votive candles, braiding cruciform palm leaves. I remember being mystified by my mother's seemingly endless number of tuna fish recipes during <laughs> Lent, and. Um, uh, it was a delight to grow up in that community. So you were a devout Catholic. We know? were, yeah. In my years, I observed the, the very sacraments right through confirmation, was involved there in the parish, and then uh, that continued until my teenage years, and then for some reason we, we stopped going on a regular basis. And uh, that sort of came to a head when I was 19. I came down with meningitis, which had me in the hospital for five weeks. And that's when I started really wrestling with what I believe. Mm. So you're a cradle Catholic. You kind of were formed and shaped in a significant way by your family, your community, your church, and the Catholic faith. Yeah. Now, uh, take us to the next stage of your journey. And what led you to examine, re-question this, re-enter that whole issue? Yeah. So there I was, five weeks, I'm, I'm looking at the ceiling in the hospital. You know, and something happens to you when you're in that place. You begin to question life's purpose and meaning. And uh, I... Uh, resolved that when I was released, I would embark upon a quest for answers. So I did. I was working in Manhattan at the time. Uh, I would go to seminars in Midtown to hear famous speakers like uh, Deepak Chopra, mm-hmm. uh, M. Scott Peck, author of Road Less Traveled. Uh, one occasion, I walked on three yards of red-hot coals with my bare feet at the Jacob Javits <laughs> Center. You're kidding. And that was stimulating. Yep, yep. Oh, my. Uh, So a lot of the transcendental meditation was part of it. Um, For some reason, I I didn't examine my Catholic faith uh, at the time. I didn't think it had the the power uh, to transform my life as I uh, sought. But 
But nevertheless, I was uh, headlong into various New Age uh, philosophies. And then my uh, my father had a severe heart attack. Mm. And uh, that is what caused me to return to my uh, Christian roots. Yeah. And how did that happen? Well, um, I got the call at my office in Manhattan. And uh, at first, we didn't think he was going to make it. So I was immediately thrust into the role of leading the family business, mid-size advertising printing company. And I was in over my head. Uh, every day, the anxiety level would, would rise. And one of our employees was an evangelical Protestant. And uh, you need to realize that Long Island, it's a little bit different than Birmingham. We have ah. three types of people. There are Catholics, there are Jews, and then there's other which is ah. a sort of a religious trip pan into which everyone else goes. So I had no understanding of Protestantism as a legitimate Christian tradition. And, and thus I just dismissed all of her attempts to, to witness uh, as uh, propaganda from a flaky employee. But I'll tell you, as the, the anxiety level grew, I became humbled and, and I agreed to go with her to church. So mm. my mom and I did Wednesday night, first time in a Protestant church, crazy place. I mean, they had things I had never seen before, like drums and guitars on the <laughs> platform. And there I was, and the preacher got up. And uh, you can imagine a young Billy Graham combined with an Al Pacino mm. and in this Italian context. And uh, he, he explained the gospel. Mm. Very, very simply, and it was it was really the first time in my life I had heard a clear explanation of why Jesus died and what that meant for me. Now, did this church present itself as a Protestant church or an evangelical church? Or? It did. Yeah, it was. It was a it was a free church. It was an independent evangelical church, and I didn't know what to make of it, frankly. Um, but uh, so it was, it was very uncomfortable. Um, but I I believe that the Lord had me there to hear the message. So you heard the gospel, and that's what really uh, spoke to your heart in that moment of need. Yeah, yeah, like uh, like so many individuals who leave their Catholic background to become evangelical Protestant. I had been involved for many years in, in uh, the church, but I never had uh, a clear understanding of the message of redemption. And uh, for me, it was uh, that night at the Village of Faith that uh, the lights were turned on. Now, did you receive Christ or pray to receive Christ on that occasion? Yeah, it it looked kind of like what you might expect. Uh, There was uh, an invitation at the end of the sermon for folks to come on down and and receive Christ. And so I did and prayed there. And that was a turning point. Uh, It's Mm. rather, I realized that not everyone has that same kind of conversion experience, but, but that was very much the case for me. You know, conversionism, David Bippington says, is one of the four kind of infallible signs of being an evangelical. Yes. The other is believing the Bible and, and cruciocentrism, the cross-centeredness of it all, and then activism, a life of activism. But this conversion, this uh, turning to Christ, this repentance that really uh, makes you a new creature, the Bible says, a new creation yeah. in yeah. Christ Jesus. And that happened to you in the context of this uh, sort of um, low-church Protestant preaching the gospel setting in New York City. Yeah. The way I think of it sometimes is that the, the contrast between the darkness uh, in which I lived beforehand um, against the, the brightness of my newfound faith in Christ was so great that uh, I have been blinking, as it were, ever since trying to get perspective on on the, the wonder of the gospel. And for me, like like many who come to faith later in life, this has developed an evangelistic impulse 
this desire to embody and proclaim the gospel uh, whenever I possibly yeah. can. And as I've come to know you and appreciate you as a friend, I think that's really true of you, Chris. I mean, you are brimming with uh, evangelistic uh, spirit and zeal. There's something inside you you can't contain. It's got to get out, and it's the the thing that transformed your own life in Jesus Christ. I think it's born out of the realization of how woefully dysfunctional and messed up I really am left to my own devices. Mm. <laughs> that sets the stage for a deeper appreciation for God's grace. Now let me ask you this question. At, the, at that moment, uh, you've received Christ, you've heard the gospel presented, you've made a commitment of your life, you've been converted. You, As we would say uh, in, in, in my sector of evangelicalism, you've been saved. Mm-hmm. Now, um, did that mean for you that you had to leave the Catholic Church, or did you think of yourself as leaving the Catholic Church at that time? I did. In in my mind, there was a clear line that I had crossed, uh, and that had implications now on the place where I would go to church. And uh, so I, I found myself attending that particular church on a regular basis. Um, what became interesting in my case, though, is that I, I uh, obtained a new position at that time as a professional fundraiser, and the, the firm in which I worked uh, had most of their clientele in the Catholic Church. Mm. So within months, I was in West Palm Beach, Florida, raising $25 million for the diocese, which meant that on the weekend I was at my Baptist church there, and that um, it, during the day, throughout the week, I was at the chancery, that is the diocesan office, working among uh, priests and nuns and the bishop. Wow, what a story. You, you know, you, so you're a Catholic who becomes an evangelical convert, Christian, but now you're working for the Catholic Church again, raising money for them. I, I am. I'm, I'm a single young man down there. And, you know, priests are wonderful friends to have. They often have uh, time to engage in discussion. So for me, as this new convert, I was filled with a desire to engage in dialogue and discussion. And uh, the truth of the matter is that these, these dear Jesuits down there had forgotten more than I had uh, learned about Christian theology, and they would hand me my doctrinal head nicely, of course. <laughs> but uh, that was really the start of what developed this interest in things Catholic and Protestant. And so that was kind of, in some ways, the making of Chris Cristaldo the theologian, because uh, you were challenged, you had to think about you know why you believe certain things and enter into discussion with others over these issues. There was a deep angst because I was convinced of the gospel of grace as it's expressed by evangelical Protestants, and yet I was unable to um, explain my position clearly and cogently among these these Catholic leaders. And uh, that was just what I needed, frankly, in order to turn me back mm. toward my Catholic roots and make sure that I really understood what it was I was arguing against. Yeah. I want to get to that phase of your life and ministry that continues right to today in just a moment. But in your book, Holy Ground, um, there is a section, if you can recall this, where you describe the priest with whom you were working in Florida at the time. And you have a conversation in the car. Do you remember what I'm talking about? It's, yeah. I think that'd be fascinating if you can recap that. Well, this was the bishop, um, Bishop Simons, and we had been working together in, in uh, Vero Beach, in St. John's Island, major um, uh, venue banquet among wealthy donors. And it was late at night, and we were driving home, and it dawned on me, this is a Monday now, that the, the previous day, my evangelical pastor had issued the so-called 60-day challenge, share your faith once once a day for 60 days, 
And I had been so busy that that Monday, the following day, I hadn't talked to anyone about Jesus. And I looked over at the passenger seat of the bishop, and I realized I'm about to drive the bishop to his home, then I'm going home, and that's the end of the day. So if I had, and, it, and I can't possibly blow this thing the first day, you know, so I need to share my faith with the bishop. But how on earth does a new convert convey his faith to a gray-haired bishop? So I decide that I will tell him my testimony. So I do, and, and five minutes pass, and ten minutes pass, and, and sweat's forming on my forehead, and I'm gripping the steering wheel. And finally I finish my monologue, and there's silence. Mm-hmm. And I turn over to the passenger seat, and I see the, the bishop has his head back and his eyes closed. And I thought, oh, mercy, he is about to launch one of those anathematizing cannons at me right now. And then I hear his heavy breathing and it occurs to me that I had put him to sleep. So, <laughs> so you have you have mastered one of the arts of evangelical preaching. I have your it, audience to sleep. It, clearly, I was called to be a preacher <laughs> at that point. Oh, I think that's a great story. But you know, one of the interesting things about that phase in your life is how these friendships you are developing, you know, were very important to you, and the interpersonal dynamic and the dialogue uh, that that's become kind of a modus operandi for your own ministry today, isn't it? It really has. There was a wonderful Monsignor Nugent uh, in Vero Beach, St. Helens, Vero Beach, and he once said to me, he's an Irishman, so with his brilliant brogue, uh, he said, look, you never, Chris, you never talk to doctrinal positions. You speak with people who hold doctrinal positions, and that's an important difference. Mm. And so you, you must always be uh, keenly aware of the relational dynamics that go along with communication if you're going to represent Jesus. Now, one of the things that uh, I've learned from you, actually, just seeing how you operate, is the way you try to clear up misunderstandings, yeah. because there's a lot of that on both sides. And I wonder, maybe you could just say a little bit about what are some common misunderstandings, misconceptions, evangelicals have about Catholics and vice versa, Catholics about evangelicals. Yeah, I think the biggest one from an evangelical point of view is this notion that Catholics believe that salvation comes by works. And uh, I, I think if you if you look closely at the teaching of the Catholic Church and the Catechism, to say nothing of documents like the Joint Declaration on Justification mm. and also um, say, Saint, uh, Pope Benedict's recent book on St. Paul, that there is very much this Augustinian tradition that affirms uh, God's grace as the as the ground of our salvation and uh, God's responsible for, uh, for it it's through the agency of, of human fidelity but but God gets the credit simply put and so um, we need a more nuanced understanding of how the Catholic uh, position on salvation compares to uh, that of your typical evangelical um, I think there there are some critiques that can be made, um, particularly with regard to purgatory and, uh, and say the Eucharistic sacrifice of Christ. Uh, but it doesn't hinge directly on the question of faith and works in every instance. Uh, that would be that would be one idea. Now, I do think on the ground there is often a problem with works. I mean, when I grew up in my parish, frankly, um, the uh, the aspect of Catholic uh, teaching that often was emphasized were the so-called precepts. You know, mm-hmm. these are things one must do in order to remain in right, uh, right relationship with the church. So, this the, my point is that we we need to think carefully 
uh, about that question. From the, the other perspective, the Catholic misconception toward Protestants, I think it's, it's natural for Catholics to define unity of faith, the tangible form of apostolic Christianity, in institutional terms because uh, that is the nature of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. But sometimes there is a failure to realize that there can be unity on the level of the message, so that there in Birmingham you've got a, a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church and a congregational church that are different denominationally, and yet they're all evangelical with regard to their their view of the gospel message. And so the charge that often is leveled against evangelicals by Catholics, that, that you're, you're woefully fragmented, isn't entirely true when you gain an appreciation for our, our identity in the message of the gospel, uh, which may or may not uh, find expression in the way we're organized institutionally. Now, you've talked a little bit about what uh, scholars have called uh, the material principle of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, faith versus works. Let me ask you to say a little bit about that other great pillar of Protestant theology, the formal principle of the Reformation, which we often call sola scriptura, by scripture alone, the authority of the Bible. How would you now, as an evangelical who used to be a Catholic but still is very much in dialogue with Catholics today and concerned about them and love them, how would you talk about the formal principle of the Reformation? Yeah, well, I think the, the Reformers were exactly right when they said that uh, the authority of the Christian faith constitutes the, the formal difference between our traditions. The way I explain this whenever I, I try to uh, help others with it is, is in terms of this question. In other words, um, we differ, Catholics and Protestants, in the way we answer this question. Where do we find the infallible authority and revelation of Jesus in the world. Where do we find apostolic faith? For the, for the evangelical Protestant, we're going to look to the text of Scripture and see there a correlation between Jesus, the living word, and Jesus, the written word. And that's our doctrine of inspiration. For the Catholic, the way that correlation works is between Jesus, the living word, and the institution of the Catholic Church. And the, 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 the category that's usually used to explain this is a continuous incarnation, that just as Jesus became the God-man in a tangible form, so now the risen Christ embodies himself in the institution of the Catholic Church. And so that means uh, the, the, um, the, the Pope uh, is the vicar of Christ, and the, 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 the bishops who surround him, and right down to the parish level where the sacraments are administered. Uh, all of that is where one encounters the infallible revelation and authority in Christ. And so for as much uh, as we agree, and there is a lot of agreement, um, it's at that point, as you said, of authority where we find the fundamental difference. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I've been involved in a movement called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and we've talked about a lot of different issues. And it seems to me we always come back against that question of, the authority of the scriptures, where do we look, what is the warrant of our belief? Those are the kind of questions that I think we still, uh, we're, we're not together. There is a there is a very serious difference yes. uh, on that issue. We have to face that very honestly. It doesn't mean you know, we, we can say all oh, Catholics don't believe the Bible. I mean, many Catholics love the Bible, cherish the Bible, read the Bible. But how the Bible is evaluated in the system of Catholic theology and in the understanding of the magisterium, 
is quite different from that, uh, which stems from the reforms of the 16th century. Yes, yes. The, our Catholic friends are incredulous when sometimes when we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus and that we are, in, in some sense, assured of this thing. And they may not always vocalize it, but the, but the feeling is, how can you have a, you know, a personal relationship with Almighty God and know that you're secure there? And the, the reason why Catholics often think that way is because their understanding of the, the identity and nature of the Church, and if, if, um, if one's relationship with God is, is necessarily related to um, observing these sacraments of the Church, and the outcome of that faith is determined uh, on the last day, then um, it doesn't make sense uh, for one to make the claim that he or she is already secure in that relationship. I want to fast forward a little bit into the present. Uh, for a number of years, you were uh, on staff of a large evangelical church doing ministry. Uh, you've been ordained as a minister of the gospel, but you are currently the director of the Ministry of Gospel Renewal at the Billy Graham Center of Wheaton College. That's right. Uh, tell us a little bit about that ministry, what led you to it, and what you're trying to accomplish through it. Yeah, yeah, Timothy. It's this work that we've been talking about among Catholics and Protestants that has uh, revealed a profound need. According to the Pew Forum, there are 15 million individuals in the U.S. now who grew up Catholic and are worshiping in an evangelical Protestant church. And uh, these people often have the same experience. Uh, they're trying to understand how to work out their faith with feelings of guilt and uh, understanding uh, also how they can share their faith with Catholic family and navigate through some of those cultural complexities. And um, as I have uh, addressed some of these needs, what I found is that, uh, frankly, there are just very few people uh, who are doing it, and uh, and the need is overwhelming. So when I was at uh, College Church on staff, um, my colleague Kent Hughes uh, pointed out that um, – I've, I've unwittingly uh, stumbled upon need and that I might consider giving this more attention. And he planted the seeds that eventually took root and brought me to um, consider this position here at Wheaton College uh, at the Billy Graham Center. And so I describe it as it's based on Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. And we look out there in the world and we see loads of people who maybe go to church but for whom the gospel isn't central. Nominal believers, uh, so-called partially evangelized. What we want to do is to provide the training for evangelicals to be a witness among these people and help them to embrace the gospel for themselves. Let me ask you to say a word about the differences you see it between evangelism, or evangelization, and proselytism. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, Whenever I address this issue of things Catholic Protestant, the question arises, Chris, so you're talking about evangelizing Catholics. What are you assuming then about the legitimacy of Catholic faith when you say that? Are you consigning them to a sub-Christian category? And the way I answer that is to say the motivation for sharing one's faith is our identity in Christ. It's who we are. In other words, in a real sense, I must wake up each day and I have to preach the gospel to myself. I have to remind Chris of who he is in Jesus. And when we gather with our brothers and sisters at church every Sunday morning, we do the same. We evangelize one another in a certain sense. And so the motivation there isn't so much uh, a, a judgment on the nature of some other person's faith. It is rather um, motivated by the fact that 
I'm a, a child of God whose identity is, is from top to bottom defined by this mission of the gospel. And that's why I share. So in the case of the Catholic then, who knows Jesus and is a brother or sister, then my ministry to him or her is going to look more like discipleship. If I'm talking, however, about that, that Catholic who's nominal in his faith and, 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 and evidently doesn't know the gospel, then it's evangelism in, in the more traditional use of that word. And so I, for one, am, am, am very comfortable with putting my arm around a Catholic brother and praising God for uh, salvation and relating to him as such. Um, but just because I, I'm willing to do that doesn't mean I, I'm, I'm not looking out for those people who maybe haven't met Jesus for the first time. Let me ask you a question in a little different direction. We've been talking a good bit about uh, personal relations and about evangelism and the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that sort of thing. But Catholics and evangelicals are the two largest religious groupings in North America today. And increasingly, it seems to me that we're facing a very hostile, secular and secularizing uh, environment in which to live and work. And that's one of the things that has drawn evangelicals and Catholics together. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, the way in which Catholics and evangelicals, not uh, smushing over any of the differences that we have to talk about and deal with, but we might be able to work together, to stand together, even to speak out together yeah. on issues of moral discernment in our culture today. Yeah, yeah. When, when I was a pastor at College Church, this was front and center for me because I was the pastor of outreach, and that meant not only evangelism, but what we called culture impact. And uh, here in the western suburb of Chicago, there's uh, a so-called abortion fortress that was built in North Aurora, Naperville. Mm. And it's, it's uh, at the time, it was the biggest abortion facility in the whole U.S. So I was, I was telling our people, look, we, we need to articulate uh, a position of life in this context. And I encourage them to be part of the prayer movements going on. So several of our folks had gone down. And then they returned to me shortly thereafter, and he said, Pastor Chris was so glad you encouraged us to go down. It was really um, a, a meaningful time of ministry. There was only one problem. The only clergy who were there were the Catholic priests, and they led us in prayer, and they actually led us in the Hail Mary. Mm. And, I, and we were looking around. Well, I'll tell you honestly, Timothy, at that point, I was embarrassed. Uh, I felt ashamed that I had not been there as well, to engage that opportunity and to have a voice. And so um, I think that's an opportunity that we evangelicals often miss. Uh, yes, we have differences uh, with our Catholic friends on important issues of authority and justification, for instance. And yet I, I for one, would uh, assert, affirm that there uh, is certainly enough common ground for us to speak with a common voice in the public sphere uh, in order to uphold uh, issues of uh, religious freedom and uh, a biblical understanding of, of marriage and, and advocating uh, on behalf of a culture of life. Yeah. The late uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles, who was a special friend of mine and worked together with us in Evangelicals and Catholics Together, talked about steps of spiritual ecumenism. We're not talking about one great world church and forgetting all the differences, but there are practical steps we can take together. He outlined ten of them, in fact, related to prayer, related to uh, acts of benevolence and mercy, and the kind of thing you're talking about, a joint witness in the public square. Mm -hmm. And I think in this moment, it's really important for 
believers in Jesus Christ across all kinds of denominational and confessional lines to find those points where they can stand together, speak out together for issues of life and for uh, the the goodness uh, of creation all around us. Yeah, yeah. And it's because, you know, when one is is confident in his understanding of the gospel and biblical teaching, I think it liberates us to enter into that discussion and to be secure, uh, to not be worried, but to do it with a clear conscience and um, and, and know that uh, we, we have the opportunity to be salt and light and to make uh, a real contribution. We're almost out of time, but I, w- I want to ask you, Chris, to say a little bit about a new project you've just been involved with. It's Journeys of Faith. It's a volume in which you've made a contribution. Tell us a little bit about that. Journeys of Faith is a book that is concerned with conversion, and uh, it presents the testimonies of four individuals, a, uh, a Catholic, Frank Beckwith, Anglican, Lyle Dorset. Uh, Wilbur Ellsworth is the Orthodox, and I represent the uh, evangelical tradition. And then we have responders, so Brad Gregory from Notre Dame, who's a Catholic, responds to my position. And it's a resource to help pastors and church leaders to talk with their folks about uh, the, the issue of conversion. There are a lot of people right now who are who are moving one direction or the other, and uh, I think we need to be able to give an answer for the hope that's within us, and that's what this work seeks to to do. That's great. You know, one of the persons you mentioned, Lyle Dorset, is my colleague here at Beeson Divinity School. He's our Billy Graham Professor of Evangelism. Uh, I like the approach to this book that you describe. It's it's what I've called elsewhere an ecumenism of conviction. Yeah. You're not playing loose and fast with the truth, with the gospel, with your own convictions, but you're finding a way to speak not just about one another, but to one another Yes. Uh, about issues of, of importance. Yes. Well, I've been speaking today to Chris Cristaldo. He is the author of Holy Ground, Walking with Jesus as a Former Catholic from Zondervan. He is also the director of the Ministry of Gospel Renewal for the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. A good friend of mine. Thank you, Chris, for this wonderful conversation. Thanks, Timothy. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.